Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so once I changed the, started changing the inputs I was putting into my body, I didn't just become physically healthier. My, my thoughts changed, you know, my perception of reality. And I came across this quote from Einstein very early on. And I, I mentioned it towards the end of the book that the most fundamental decision that we make is whether we live in a friendly or a hostile universe. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Health Theory. I am here with none other than Sean Stevenson. Sean, welcome back, man. Great to be here, man. Anytime talking with you is awesome. Dude, I feel the same. I absolutely love researching you. The new book, Eat Smarter, uh, is really fun to see you make the transition from sleep, which is what you're known for, but really the diet and health side is what you've spent more of your time on. Um, so I'm super amped to talk to you about this. One of the things that I want to really go ham on today, uh, because you cover it so interestingly in the book, is burning fat, changing your life through your diet, and the fact that people struggle with it, not because of calories, but because of a failure to recognize how individual we are. Um, walk me through that dilemma. Talk about how you approach in the book and what the hell people are supposed to do with the fact that nobody is like them, which is something you mentioned over and over in the book. Help us. Yes, yeah, perfect, man. Yeah. So there's this term that we're really working to impress upon culture called your metabolic fingerprint. All right. Each of us has a unique metabolic fingerprint. And this consists of, of course, there's genetic components, there's microbial components. Mm. There's so much about us that makes us so diverse. There's nobody like you in the history of humanity who has the same metabolism. And there'll never be anybody like you in the future. And the craziest part, Tom, is that there's even yourself right now, your metabolism next week is going to be significantly different. It's constantly changing and evolving and adapting. And I'm really working to impress this upon culture because this cookie cutter system of nutrition has not, has not really given us good results if we just look at what's happening with our society. A big part of that, as you mentioned, when I went to school, I went to a nice private university, very expensive, they had a great pre-med track. And I took a nutritional science class which was an elective, I didn't have to take it. And I thought nutrition had to do with fitness, right? So I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn about how to be more fit. There was nuance there because, you know, I didn't really understand the difference between health and fitness. And so the very first day of class, the very first day of class, he said that if you wanna control your body composition, all you have to do is control calories. If you wanna control your health, we just need to manage calories. Calories were the tip of the spear. It was the thing that we were taught. If we can regulate this thing, this entity, then we can regulate our health. Now, the big problem is kind of manifested in culture is that there's actually these epicaloric controllers, right? Sort of like epigenetics, right? There's things that are above genetic control. Now we know there are things above caloric control that actually control what calories do in our bodies, which gets back to our unique metabolic fingerprint in a moment. But Getting that from my professor, and by the way, sidebar, my, my professor was borderline obese himself. And he was an incredibly brilliant man. And he was doing the things that he was, he wasn't like secretly going and like beer bonging, like three musketeers or whatever. Like he was teaching us at the time, it was the food pyramid, right? Seven to 11 servings of whole grains each day should be the staple, the, the, the base of the diet. And in that system of thinking, all he did was he created learned helplessness. 
because he kept trying to do the thing. He's just like, well, I just need 14 to 19 servings of whole grains and I'll get it. I just need to cut my calories more. And it wasn't working. And what we know today is that, for example, I'll give you one of the, the epicaloric controllers. You've said this before, Tom, you've heard many people say this. It's not just the calories, it's the quality of the calories. Just like with Sleep Smarter, it's not just the minutes of sleep, it's the quality of those minutes. And so now we've got a really interesting study. This was published in Food and Nutrition Research, and I mapped this out really well in Eat Smarter. The research wanted to find out what happened, what happens when you eat a meal of whole foods versus a meal of processed foods. Mm. And so they had some test subjects to consume what they deemed to be a whole food sandwich, which was multi-grain bread and cheddar cheese. All right. Now, that's, of course, is debatable. But now they've got the other group of test subjects consuming a processed food sandwich, which was white bread and cheese product. And some folks might be like, what the hell is cheese product? That's what Kraft is. Kraft Singles. They can't legally call it Kraft cheese because there's not enough cheese in the cheese. Mm -hmm. But as I digress. So anyways, here's the most important part of this story. The sandwiches are the exact same amount of calories, the whole food version and the processed food set version. Same amount of fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. On paper, same sandwich. It should have the same metabolic effect according to the calories in, calories out model. But here's what happened. After compiling the data, the folks who ate the processed food sandwich had a 50% reduction in calorie burn after eating that meal versus the people who ate the whole food version. All right. So I'm, I'm going to pause it there. Why? How, how did they determine burn? Right. Yeah. So this is a great example, a little sidebar for everybody to understand the pathway of fat leaving your body or what we call this caloric expenditure. So that's one of the things we're demystifying and eat smarter is like, where the hell does fat go? Where does fat go when you lose it? Where does this quote burn process happen? So number one, we've got when we're thinking about like eliminating fat, we're not, we can't indiscriminately kill a fat cell itself. When you're born, you have about the same amount of fat cells that you have today. Um, what happens is the fat cells themselves get filled with contents, right? In the form of these energy packets like triglycerides. And what we're doing, by the way, your fat cells can swell up and they can become a hundred times their, their size, their original size. So it's, it's crazy what fat cells can do. And so what we're what the goal is when we're talking about quote fat loss is getting the fat cell to number one open to release its contents then it needs to get shuttled to its end station which primarily the mitochondria to actually be burned at this metabolic power plant and it gives off this atp gives off energy but what they discovered was that about 84 percent of the fat that we lose is via carbon dioxide when we breathe out so as you describe the sandwich, so first of all, the mildly processed sandwich, because even cheese is obviously processed food, um, does not strike me as the ideal barometer for whether this is accurate. So it's interesting that there are still pretty staggering results between um, mildly processed and extremely processed. And then what is your prediction? If they were to do that with like the Sean Stevenson prescribed whole food diet, would that reduction in burn from where you're at with a true, real, optimized whole food diet be even more Even dramatic? better. Yes, exactly. That's the point. That's the point. But that's getting back to what are your genes expecting you to eat? Because the further we get kind of mutated and away from the, the, the origin of a food, the more complex it becomes for our for ourselves to really recognize how to use that food, which created these, what I call these hormonal clogs. So this is why there was this reduction in energy expenditure post eating that sandwich. Basically their hormones, their, their tissues became much more stingy and hanging on to that caloric energy. And so fat cells not opening up. So that's number one. They, and this is, this is the part of the nuance. Like we can't identify, we the study doesn't identify, right. Where is the clog happening? But we know it's happening. And I would argue that it's happening throughout the entire process, right? The fat cell being able to have its intelligence to do its job correctly. Because another thing, even if the fat cell releases contents, it can get reabsorbed somewhere else. So it needs to get to its end destination. And then the process of metabolism with the mitochondria, the mitochondria have to be healthy and doing their job, you know? And so, so many pieces along this process can become, uh, can become damaged. You know, and here's the great thing about us as humans, we're very resilient, 
Like your body can sort itself. If you just look at us, like just look at what the body is able to take, how unhealthy we can be and still be kicking, you know? But also just imagine how good things can get as well, you know, when we're give our, giving our bodies the right thing. So our bodies are always seeking to get back into homeostasis. It's always looking for that. But it's also very resilient at helping you to survive. And one of the things that I really want to bring forward as well in this conversation of fat, because again, I didn't know we would, we would talk about this, but in our culture, we're trying to kill fat. We're trying to get rid of fat. We're, we have over 200 million people in our country are overweight or obese right now. And right now we have 43% of our citizens are clinically obese, moving towards 50%, half of our population within the next couple of years. It's insane. And I think you come from a similar circumstance. In my family, just say I got 30 close family members, 28 of them were obese growing up. Oh, sure. And these are, this doesn't mean that they're bad people. It doesn't mean that they're not trying. It doesn't mean that they want to be obese. It's just the nature of the environment that we're in and not really knowing how metabolism works. And so this idea of indiscriminately killing fat, we have to do away with that because our body fat is actually, it's pretty amazing. It's actually doing what it's designed to do. It's what's enabled us as humans to evolve and get to this point because it was this incredibly, incredibly intelligent energy storage system during times when things were a little bit leaner. And the problem is we, we don't have any lean times anymore at all. So you were a clinician for 10 years. I find your approach to talking about fat right now very revealing, and I'm interested to know why you take it. So uh, you're being very kind. Um, as a clinician, have you learned that you have to have a level of kindness to get people to start doing the right things? Like why lead with that instead of just saying like, cause your book ends with a prescription. You tell people go do this and look at you cage it a thousand different ways or, you know, hedge your bets saying that I don't like to prescribe things. Like everybody's different. Um, why are you leading with kindness when you talk about fat? Tom, man, I love you. This is why I love talking with you. You know, it, it, I, it is very intentional. You know, I don't come from very kind circumstances, you know, like when I, was in college and, and figuring all this stuff out. I, I lived in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, and I lived in uh, apartment complex, sleeping on a mattress on the floor. I never met anybody who went, went to college, let alone graduated, except maybe professors or something like that. But, you know, just from the environment that I was in, man, I was inundated with poor health and violence, you know, and even myself, I was kicked out of high school my entire junior year for fighting. I got kicked out of that same private university that I mentioned that you know, I went to in the first place. I got kicked out of that school for fighting. Who does that? Who goes to college and gets kicked out for fighting? I just grew up in an environment where we're taught to solve our conflicts with violence. And so I, I say that to say, part of it is, I believe that humans are inherently good. And, but we are also products of our, of our, envi of our environment, but we're creators of our environment as well when we become aware of it. And so once I changed it, started changing the inputs I was putting into my body, I didn't just become physically healthier. My, my thoughts changed, you know, my perception of reality. And I came across this quote from Einstein very early on. And I, I mentioned it towards the end of the book that the most fundamental decision that we make is whether we live in a friendly or a hostile universe. I love that quote so much. Man, like I get the chills right now because I look, I lived in what seemed like a hostile situation and I just started to see beauty everywhere, man. I started to see potential everywhere. I started to see the goodness in people because we're all just trying to get our needs met. And seeing in my clinical practice, nine times out of 10, the people making it to me, they had been, they weren't treated with kindness. And so I started to lead with that and see people open up just when I let them talk. And here's a big tip for the coaches out there. If you let somebody talk, if you just ask them questions, they will tell you the cause and cure of what's going on with them. They already know. But we have to have the, the patience and the kindness to do those things. And also knowing that oftentimes, even though they were making the decision to put the food in their mouth, yes, but I'm coming from a place where I didn't know that there was a difference. I just didn't know. As soon as I got access, I started to make better choices. Now, you didn't know yeah. what, that yeah. there was a difference in the foods that you were eating, like the quality of calories? Exactly. Yeah. I didn't know that there was a difference between a fish stick and, you know, wild caught salmon. It's just food. It's just stuff that we eat. And we're just trying to survive. 
you know, let alone thinking about thriving and cognitive performance and all this stuff. We're just trying to get by, you know. But once I became aware of how much food mattered, that's part one, the awareness. But part two is also the accessibility. I had to take myself outside of my environment, Tom, and actually, you know, go to, you know, mile on the other side of town to a wild oats. You know, like I had to make exceptional decisions to make those things happen. But investing back in myself paid off dividends. But most folks don't even know that that first part is an option to begin with. So we're leading with kindness. We're, I'm assuming, lowering people's defenses. We want to avoid the morality of food. I know online you always avoid sort of BS. Um, you talk a lot about not getting involved in arguments over minutia and staying like, hey, let's look at the sort of big swaths of what's actually going to make progress. Okay, cool. So we're being kind. We're, I'm assuming we're encouraging people to be kind to themselves. This is not a moral failing if you find yourself unhealthy. What this is, is some fundamental misunderstanding. But you just said that people, if you let them talk, they'll actually tell you what to, what the fix is. So if they know what the fix is, why aren't they doing it? Mm, this is a great question. For me, there's two parts. Part one is the education. And this is huge. And you're a big proponent of this because you might know that there's an issue with something, but you might not be educated on why that is and also what to do about it, right? And so in the instance of food, I mentioned a little bit briefly about my indoctrination in my first nutritional science class, which again, my professor meant well, but he was teaching me something that was fundamentally flawed because it ignores the fact that your body is made of food, all right? My, my colleagues, I know the top cardiologists in the world, top gastroenterologists, top neurologists, the list goes on and on. They might go to school for 12 years to become a cardiologist and learn about food for two weeks. And your heart is made of fucking food. This is the problem. Like you don't even know what the thing is made of that you're treating. And then we're treating the dysfunction with a drug, right? You've got lisinopril, you've got statins. You're not understanding your heart is made from food. The blood running through your arteries is made from food. The arteries themselves are made from food. So the system itself is fundamentally flawed. So again, People coming in, they might be aware that, yeah, I need to change what I'm eating. I know that. But they're so far removed from understanding how powerful it is and what to do about it because of the cookie cutter stuff that, again, my colleague might get, get two weeks of training in, which is like eat a low fat diet, plenty of fiber, all this really superficial BS. And then they're telling their patients, you need to lose weight. How? How? Like, and so often, and I talk about this in the book, our system of healthcare has been treating the healthcare professionals so poorly, it's a badge of honor to absolutely destroy yourself in medical school and then try to pull yourself out of it, you know, and just so you see the high rates of suicide, depression, anxiety, obesity, dying from the very same things that they're treating. The system is flawed. And it's fundamentally because it's not appreciating the fact that we, as I'm seeing Tom right now, and as he's seeing me, we're seeing the food that we eat. It's That's remarkable. Crazy. That's really well said. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to start um, putting my finger on some of the things that I think end up causing people problems. This is obviously a world I'm extraordinarily familiar with. So put somebody on a low enough calorie diet, no matter what those calories are comprised of. I could give somebody a Twinkie with arsenic on it. And if it is low enough in calories, over time, if the arsenic doesn't kill them, they're going to lose weight. They're going to lose fat on top of a whole host of other problems. But like, what do you say to that, Sean Stevenson? Ooh, this is good. And there's actually a professor who did the Tweaky diet. Yes, he, he did. did. The Tweaky experiment. You know, just like, see, I told you guys, it's just the calories. Now, here's some of the fundamental issues with that. Because anybody who's just as, even as remotely versed in nutrition and just fundamentals of health because again, our system of medicine just focuses on disease, not what creates real health, but like, what is this impact that it's having on your neurotransmitters, this Twinkie diet? What is it doing to your pancreas? What are you making your heart cells out of, right? What is the long-term ramifications of, of a diet protocol like that? And so here's the, the term that I, again, I'm pressing upon culture is epicaloric control. We mentioned the quality of food briefly, but another one of these major controllers is the microbiome. And I know that, of course, you've had folks talking about this 
on the show, but I want to take this to another level because this has to do with your body's processing of calories. And research, and this was published in the journal Cell, really crazy study. They discovered that there's a certain bacteria that they found in mice that blocked their intestines from absorbing as many calories from the food that they ate, all right? Now, through the lens of allopathic medicine, we just need to bottle up whatever bacteria that is and sell that shit. You Big know, just block people's intestines. That's it. You know, block people's intestines from absorbing as many calories. You can keep eating what you want. Not understanding your body does not operate in a vacuum. There's no such thing as side effects. These are direct effects because everything's interconnected. One of the things I saw early on in my clinical practice, probably five years into it, I've been in this space for 19 years, but 10 years in clinical practice, probably about five years into it, I came across a study because so many people were coming in, statins were like, they were the hottest thing on the streets, all right? Everybody was coming in on a statin. And there was a study that came out revealing that folks taking a statin had a 30% increased incidence of having diabetes now, all right? Something was happening with creating abnormal blood sugar. You know, does this have to do with the beta cells? Does it have to do with insulin sensitivity? You know, that was open for debate, but we knew that it was happening. And so when you, when you try to treat that symptom with, okay, we just need to get everybody this bacteria, is this going to affect my bacteria's ability to produce B12? Is it going to affect my bacteria's ability to produce short-chain fatty acids to protect my gut lining and pre- prevent autoimmune conditions? We can't think about it in those terms. So here's where we do think about it. All right, so they discovered this bacteria. Now we transition this over to humans. Now this was from researchers at the Wiseman Institute. So Tom, in my practice, I could have somebody send out for a stool sample, never even see them a day in my life. I can get their report back and know with a high degree of certainty whether or not they're obese based on the makeup of their microbes. That is insane. And so the researchers Now the question know, is really fast while you're on that side note, what comes first? Do you just have a bad roll of the dice and uh, you came out of your mother's womb and the microbiome that you formed happened to be obesity um, promoting? Or is it your diet? The microbes respond to the fact that you're eating Cheetos and all that kind of stuff, all your cheese-like products. Uh, yeah, which, which comes first? It's a both-end world. It's a both-end world, Tom, because we are getting that download specifically from our mother but one of the studies was done in identical twins, all right? You don't get more similar of a person to study, or people to study, to see the effects of one thing or the other than identical freaking twins, man. When they find a twin whose bacteria cascade is associated with obesity, insulin resistance, and, and weight gain, and then they find one of the other twins who has an, in a microbiome who's, that's associated with leanness, right? And they track them over years that they're, they're in the same household eating the same diet, but the twin who has the microbiome with the cascade associated with obesity became insulin resistant more often, became obese more often than their lean microbiome twin, right? And the microbiome shifts based on our choices, based on our lifestyle, because one of the number one drivers, and I broke this down in Eat Smarter as well, what we discovered is that folks who are eating more of a quote, traditional diet, they're hunter-gatherer, closer to that type of diet, they have upwards of four times greater diversity in their microbes than the average person in the Western world. We're losing our diversity like crazy. And a big part of this is we're not feeding the microbes their preferred food source for them to stick around in the first place, all right? So these are what we call, quote, prebiotics, and anybody can go to Google and look in prebiotic foods, but that's limited thinking. Like we got asparagus, Jerusalem artichoke, onions and garlic, that's small small potatoes. Here's the truth. Every single food has prebiotic capacity, every single real food, for some strain of bacteria. And there might be a food that your ancestors have been eating for centuries that is suddenly stripped away by a diet choice or just by, by proxy, just by the environment that you're in, and suddenly you don't have that bacteria getting fed anymore, it has no choice but to become extinct in your system, right? And so what the researchers discovered was that the number one way, as your bacteria diversity goes down, your rate of insulin resistance goes up. Bacteria diversity goes down, your rate of diabetes goes up, your rate of obesity goes up, your rate of insomnia goes up as your rate of microbes goes down, all right? We know that they have an inverse relationship. 
the number one way to reverse and improve the diversity of our microbes is just so simple, is to just simply increase the diversity of foods that we're eating. Now, why does that work? I get why if I had depleted a population and I can bring back what is there, but if it's truly gone extinct, is there dirt on the food? Like, how am I repopulating if I'm not taking a supplement of some kind with a probiotic in it? Yeah, this is a great question as well. So number one, uh, in my practice, I put people on probiotics so frequently and we would get like these credible probiotic formulas. Some of them take like two years fermentation process, it's like wizards do spells over them, all kinds of shit. But we were missing the point because they, they're not able to colonize and to populate in the gut to do all the cool things that they can potentially do if they're not given their preferred food substrates, they're not given their prebiotic sources. And so to answer that question, yes, we do want to have sources of probiotics coming in, preferably through food, right? And we do go through that. But also, the most important thing, again, is not missing the point, and this is the, this is the point. When you eat a food, when you, we'll just say we eat a berry. When you're eating that berry, you're eating a prebiotic, and you're eating that berry's microbiome as well. You're taking that on yourself. So it, it is coming along with probiotic, with bacteria. It's just the nature of eating real food. Same thing with an avocado. You're eating that avocado's microbiome. If you eat some kale, you're eating that kale's microbiome. If you eat some walnuts, you're eating that walnut's microbiome. So we have this limited thinking that I need probiotic, you know, some kind of special probiotic food. I need some special probiotic supplement. No, we're, we're really missing the point here. Food already has the thing. But for many of us, especially where we are, we can like leverage, because I know some people have gotten some wonderful benefits adding in some fermented foods. Absolutely. But we don't want to miss out on this prebiotic because prebiotics are needed for the probiotics to make postbiotics. All right. So this is when they're making vitamins, minerals, short chain fatty acids in you for you. It's this beautiful symbiotic relationship. So I hope right, that I makes draw, sense. It does. I want to draw a straight line from the question about, hey, you can eat a Twinkie and if your calories are low enough, you are going to lose fat and the punchline of what you just said. So here's what I'm taking away from that. You actually can, for sure, I promise you, you can lose weight eating anything if you keep your calories low enough. Now, some foods, because of the signaling effect of calories and not all calories are the same, you may have to restrict tighter and tighter and tighter on certain foods than you would on others. And so, yes, you can lose weight eating a Twinkie diet. But as you mentioned, not only do we have those kind of effects, but your blood vessels and all of that other stuff are made up of the very things that you eat. And in processing the like at a cellular structural level and a signaling level, you're changing the material that you're taking in. And it's like, I get why people are obsessed with like getting shredded and being in good shape. But when you begin to understand that that is a thing that happens and that there's actually a whole host of things that happen, then people begin to think about it in the right way. Now, what I found amazing about your book is you call out directly, hey, boys and girls, don't worry about whether you're paleo, vegan, uh, carnivore, whatever. none of that matters. Listen to your body. Yeah. Now, it's... what I want to know is what the hell do you mean by that? <laughs> We're right now, there's a lot of infighting over minutia, as you mentioned that I said earlier. Um, and these wonderful diet frameworks, these are my friends, you know, the top person in each of those. And they, the reason that they write these books and that they have these positions is that they see results for their patients. They see results for the people that they're working with. They're not trying to be negligent. They're not trying to ignore the data. They're helping people. But what's also overlooked is that there's a large percentage of people that each of their diet frameworks is not helping. And that's the truth. And a big part of that is Many of these diet frameworks, even though they can be wonderful, they can also imprison you and they can leave things out, make things off limits that you might need, that somebody else doesn't need, right? But also it might be protecting you for something, you know? So there's, there's balance there, but we have to have a little bit more agency over our thoughts, agency over our choices. And this gets into the discomfort of becoming more educated about who we are. 
you know? And fortunately, there's no easy way around this. You know, if you're really going to thrive and to, and to be the best version of yourself, we have to learn how we work. But the thing, the thing that I want people to understand, and just kind of going back, I, I gotta really wrap this point up, because you really like made that hard line point about this with the Twinkie diet. Those researchers at the Wiseman Institute who understand about what's, you know, the bacteria in mice, they took bacteria samples, fecal samples, which fecal transplantation is like one of the hottest things on the street as well. It's super weird, but it is. Um, but they take they took these fecal samples from folks who had a bacteria cascade associated with obesity and implanted it into lean mice. Then they took another set of fecal samples from human subjects who had a bacteria cascade associated with leanness and implanted that into lean mice. Those mice stayed lean. The mice who received the implants from the folks with the bacteria cascade associated with obesity, those mice became insulin resistant. They gained weight and gained body fat, not because of calories, not because they changed what they were eating, because of the bacteria. These principles supersede any of the ideas that we carry about just managing calories if you just get into a caloric deficit because the mice are already eating the same thing yet they're gaining weight and i've seen again many other people listening especially if they're in healthcare people coming in they're already at a thousand calorie a day diet you know and maybe they're six feet tall and their weight loss has been stuck and then we once we can have a certain level of like stepping away and not thinking we have all the answers and listen to the person do some investigation. We might find out there's an underlying autoimmune condition, a thyroid issue. We might find out that inflammation is the causative factor because as you mentioned, we talk about that as well. There's so many things that control what calories do. Not to say that being in a caloric deficit can't just make weight fly off of somebody, absolutely. But even within that, there are things controlling that person's metabolism that's going to outpicture different results from somebody who might be at the exact same height and weight starting off as them. Where I wanna keep pushing on though is this notion of self-awareness and how you listen to your body. So um, I'll give you an example. When I first started working out, I had been working out pro probably for about eight months before I realized that you could fire your lats. Like you could actually send a signal to that part of your back and it would pull your arms down. And you have this understanding of, whoa, when I fire that muscle, I feel it. I can actually feel that muscle contracting and I now have a level of control. With food, it's the same, but it's like steering a boat. When you steer a boat, you do something, nothing happens, and then six seconds later, the boat moves. So it is very hard to drive a boat because you have to account for that leg. Food is insanely complicated. If you eat one thing and you're in a good mood, you'll be fine, you eat the same thing, in a bad mood and it upsets your stomach, it's so complicated. I mean, that's just one of a bazillion different ways. But yeah. people don't learn to connect. I ate this thing and I feel this way. I'll Ooh. give you an example from my own life. About six months ago, Sean, I'm, I'm always sharp. And I was just like, just in the middle of the day, all the time, man, I was like way out of it. And then finally, I connected that feeling with the word people use for brain fog. I had never understood what people meant by brain fog. And so all of a sudden, I was like, is this brain fog? And I was like, oh, my God, this is brain fog. I don't think I'm tired. This is, if it's brain fog, it is almost certainly something I'm eating. I end up tracking it down. It was pecans. I have no mm -hmm. idea why. I can eat pecans. But when I eat them every day... All of a sudden, because I'd gotten into this routine where one of my meals was made with a lot of pecans. It was amazing. And over time, and that was the worst part, it probably took four months of me eating those, that meal, almost every day to get to that point. But then once I was there, until I removed them from my diet, I couldn't shake it. No matter how much I slept, caffeine, nothing. I just felt that brain fog. Stopped eating them, was gone in like 48 hours. That's so crazy. And this is the thing is... It can be something so small and subtle like that. And what you're bringing up and how do we kind of get this inner guidance system back online? First of all, it's an acknowledgement that it exists because in our system, we are so focused on objective measures, which I'm very analytical, so I'm super into that stuff. But being able to track the, the data, the things that everybody else can measure, isn't even remotely 
close to how powerful your subjective experience is. Tell me something that matters more than how you feel. I'll wait. You know, this is the thing. This is the most important barometer of everything in our life. And yet we get we pay so little attention to it. So basic metrics that we can pay attention to when we eat a meal, just seeing how does that make me feel? How does the digestive process feel? But so I think so often as well, we start to have these alarms that go off when we eat certain things and we just keep hitting the snooze button on it. Like, ah, you know, this fatigue is normal. This stomach discomfort. We get these different responses. Your body's giving you feedback that something's wrong. Something's not right here. And yet we accept it as normal. And so that inner intelligence, we start to create a lot of static on the line. All right. So that's part of it is being able to clear off the static on the line. And I want to add another layer here just with a little bit more science on what that static on the line can look like. There's this wonderful I talk about the science of flavor in Eat Smarter and there's this wonderful occurrence of something called post ingestive feedback. All right, post ingestive feedback. And essentially through our evolution, whenever we would eat a food, your body, your your brain your, your tissues are essentially like taking notes, like, okay, you know, we'll just say, just found some wild berries you ate. I got some copper from this. I got some selenium. I got some of some amino acids. I got a little bit of uh, omega-3s from the seeds. Your, your, your body is taking notes that when you eat that food, it's connecting a flavor sensation to those nutrients. And so now when you start to become deficient in those nutrients, your body can submit a craving a craving signal to go and eat that food to get those nutrients back to where we need them to be. Now, here's the problem. Processed food manufacturers have really muddied up the waters of this post-ingestive feedback because now we can make things taste like different things all the time. And it doesn't have to be exact, but it's just enough to create enough biological interference that we don't even have that intelligence anymore, right? So a big takeaway from today and just overall for everybody is that chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic overeating. Chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic hunger. When we're having these deficiencies, part of the big reason why we're having uh, haphazard hunger and cravings, our bodies are driving us. It's not just the fact that we're addicted, right? That's it, That can be dismissive. They're just addicted to sugar. Well, they're probably deficient in damn near every single nutrient that they need to actually thrive, all right? And your body is going to keep compelling you to eat more to get those things in. That's how we evolve. And so having that process, you know, again, to become kind of skewed and twisted up, it just, it, it makes another layer of complexity of trying to figure out this inner intelligence. So to, to help with this, and I provided some very specifics in the book, but again, I'm very much on, we've got to experiment for yourself. But one of the things that was found to help to reduce the impact of, of hyperpalatable foods on our brain, funny enough, is chlorophyll. All right, chlorophyll. Was, yeah, chlorophyll is found to help to uh, reduce the urge to eat hyperpalatable foods and also to reduce neuroinflammation. Okay. Do you take it as a supplement? So just in foods. You know, chlorophyll, anything green is going to be a good source of chlorophyll. So, of course, green leafy vegetables, but then you've got these super dense sources of chlorophyll like chlorella. You know, they even got its name, chlorella, from the high chlorophyll content, spirulina. But then you also get these other benefits there. Like with spirulina is one of the foods clinically proven to reduce neuroinflammation. And why am I bringing this up? Where's the interference in being able to know how we feel and what do we need? Tom, I want everybody to get this because you're not going to hear You're going to hear this in a few years. But right now, you, you're here here first with Tom Billu. One of the biggest epidemics we're facing today is neuroinflammation, all right, inflammation of the brain. And one of the studies that I talked about uh, in the book, and this was published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, they, they reported that specifically hypothalamic inflammation. And your hypothalamus is like, this is like your body's internal thermostat, re literally regulating what your metabolic rate is. Your brain doesn't give a shit how many, if you're trying to calorie count, your hypothalamus can tell your gut to reduce the absorption of calories that you just ate. Your hypothalamus can tell your gut to increase the absorption of calories from food you just ate. 
right? These things are epicaloric controllers superseding that normal function. So what they discovered was that hypothalamic inflammation is one of the biggest driving forces of obesity because it's throwing off our metabolic rate, all right? And here's the other side. Obesity is one of the biggest causes of hypothalamic inflammation. And it's just creating this terrible loop where people can't get out of it. And again, I know my friends, you might have these diet frameworks, but if we're not explicitly helping people to reduce the inflammation in their brain, we might just be spinning our wheels here. But many of these wonderful diet frameworks though, that are really worth their salt, they're accidentally doing it anyways. They're helping to reduce neuroinflammation. One of the foods that was, again, clinically proven to reduce inflammation, neuroinflammation, funny enough, and I, I'm, this is not an advocation to, for this food, it's just the data exists, I was shocked. Researchers at Auburn University found that oleocanthal-rich extra virgin olive oil is incredibly effective at reducing brain inflammation, and it's been found to repair the blood-brain barrier, right? Your internal security system, basically keeping things out of your brain that creating more inflammation that gets damaged over time, especially from you know excess sugar and the list goes on and on. But wow, I didn't know olive oil can do that shit. That's really remarkable. And what they found was there's two to three tablespoons a day. And how do you go about that? There's nuance there too, you know. Um, olive oil, if you've ever seen it in the stores, nine times out of 10, it's in dark glass. And this is because it's photosensitive. Light can damage olive oil. All right. And so you don't want it to be in clear plastic. That's already nasty. It's already messed up. All right. Number one. And also is this should bring up, well, should I be cooking with it? You can. And it might be healthier. Well, definitely healthier than these highly processed seed oils, you know, canola oil and vet uh, quote vegetable oil, but very low heat. But ideally, and folks, traditionally, we're going to use it as a finisher. So your meal is finished, plated, and you drizzle some olive oil on Use it to make dressings. People put it on sourdough bread. Talk to me about that. So massive individual variability. Nobody's ever gonna be like you again. Nobody's had digestion like you. Nobody ever will have digestion like you. So you are doing an end of one experiment, whether you want to or not. How do people figure out what to eat? So this gets down to a principles and not, not written rules, not def definitive points because again, everybody is unique. So there's gonna be principles in every diet framework that are gonna make them successful. And then there's gonna be things that can make any diet framework go terribly wrong, right? So what we wanna do is eat, eat in a way that number one, and I just mentioned this earlier, to help to reduce inflammation so that these internal guidance systems can get back online. This inflammation is, it's a really, it sounds kind of hooky. Tom, I don't know about you, but it just sounds inflammation, inflammation, but it, it is a real problem because inflammation, number one, it's not a bad guy. That's number one. We need inflammation. It's a functional part of our immune system, a part of our healing, a part of just cellular processing, period. We don't want no inflammation. It's a part of growth. However, chronic inflammation, inflammation where it's not supposed to be, like this heightened neuroinflammation can really, really mess us up. So the biggest driving forces for most of us today with inflammation, specifically gut inflammation, is the consumption of pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides. And you know, I get I did share one of the studies in the book finding conclusively a meta-analysis that pesticides do in fact not only create inflammation in the gut, but create abnormal uh, gene expression from your microbes, right? Your micro most of our, if we go gene for gene, most of the genes we carry in our bodies are not ours, all right? We're 99% genes of other, you know, our, our uh, bacteria cascade that we're carrying ar around with us. And so these things damage our gene, micro the microbial expression of our genes, all right? So this is not a small thing. And we've come to accept it as normal. And right now we have literally thousands of pesticides have been approved by the EPA, so-called Environmental Protection Agency, supposed to be protecting us. Many of them have been recalled. Many of them are actually caught up in red tape right now, like chlorpyrifos, for example, that's been found study after study to lead to uh, uh, 
uh, neurodegenerative diseases, specifically for development of babies and creating brain damage and, and creating skyrocketing rates of miscarriages. You would think it would be, it would have been gone. It's happened so many times, it's disgusting. Because with these companies, it isn't innocent until proven guilty. It's innocent until it cuts into their bottom line enough, the lawsuits. Because it's just, you know, it's just business as usual. They already have a certain amount of set aside for all the damage it's gonna cause. So it, when we're talking about avoiding pesticides, this isn't a, it's not a trendy thing that I'm talking about here. These chemicals are not designed for human consumption. But the premise is it's generally regarded as safe because we're a bigger organism. We're bigger than the little pest that they're trying to kill. But things bioaccumulate in our tissues, and number one. And number two, we're made of little things, smaller than those damn pests. We're made of these things, and they're damaging our microbes. They're damaging our cells. So do we avoid that by eating organic? Organic, there's nuance there with organic, but it's going to be generally a good step to make. And we can do that ourselves. And as we continue to demand it, there's going to continue to change what's available in the market for sure. So, and also a, a way around that, because again, not having a lot of money, I, I would start to go to farmer's markets. There was a farmer's market in Ferguson and meet the farmers, ask them, Hey, are you guys spraying shit on your lettuce? You know? And they're like, absolutely not. You know, and just talking to them, learning, you know, there's many, and it's much less cost, right? I can get three times the amount of lettuce that I was buying at Whole Foods or whatever there for the same amount of money. So, um, so yes, avoiding the things that are damaging this internal intelligence, that are damaging our, our metabolism, right? So that's just one. But then adding things in as well that help to reduce inflammation. So what does that look like? One of the most important, Tom, and I'm going to say this again and again because this has this has to do with metabolism, but also it has to do with our sleep quality. It also has to do with our cognitive performance, and I know this is important for you as well. And this is the need to make sure we're getting in plenty of DHA and EPA. All right, this is so freaking important. I don't even want this to. If anybody does anything from this episode, I want to make sure that you're getting in enough omega-3 fatty acids in the form of DHA and EPA. So number one, DHA and EPA have express lanes. If you want to think about the blood-brain barrier being like a toll booth, they have express passes to get into the brain. Like your brain sucks them up like in droves because they're needed for structure of your brain cells. Omega-3s function as structural fats in your brain, creating plasticity, creating stability, and signal transduction so your brain cells can actually talk to each other. Without omega-3s, shit goes wrong real fast. To the degree, one of the craziest studies in the book, they found that the folks who had the lowest intake of DHA and EPA had the highest rate of brain shrinkage, all right? Your, your brain literally shrinks rapidly if you're not getting these fats in. And so what it was was just under 1.2 teaspoons a day. Anything under that, increase the rate of brain shrinkage. What are the best three foods or supplements to get your um, DHA and EPA? Okay, perfect. Food first, fruit first. The Journal of Neurology found that folks who consume just one seafood meal per week do in fact perform better on cognitive skills tests. I think that's a direct one-to-one -one response to those omega-3s. Uh, but if you if you're not taking a if you're taking a vegan or vegetarian protocol, I've got news for, good news for you too. Uh, but food first, and then of course there's grass-fed beef in that same spectrum has omega threes, a high ratio of omega threes. Uh, eggs, the best food source though, Tom, is not the fish, the fatty fish, but the fatty fish eggs. So salmon roe and caviar can have three times more DHA and EPA than the fish itself. And then we've got. From there, most of the studies done on DHA and EPA is done via fish oil. All right, so I did share some studies in the book that are just really shocking when it comes to fish oil. But then from there, the next rung down is krill oil, right? Krill, that's a microscopic shrimp, super dense in astaxanthin, which makes your body absorb omega-3s even better. It's incredible. And that might be for somebody who's doing a vegetarian protocol, wherever that lies on your ethics, Krill oil might be a savior for your brain. If anything, everybody today, even if you're taking a vegan protocol, please get yourself an algae oil, all right? A high quality algae oil. 
It has the DHA and EPA there, but we don't have clinical studies now to see its effectiveness, but we do know that it's there. And I just don't want you to wait around for that data. DHA is so important for your brain. Just to be clear, this is the plant source is ALA, right? That's what you find in chia seeds and flax seeds and hemp seeds. I would have patients get flaxseed oil for years. I was missing the point. It's not the same as DHA and EPA, but it's so important for your brain that your body can convert some ALA into DHA, but you can lose, depending on your metabolism, your unique metabolic fingerprint, you can lose 90% in the conversion process. Mm. And so you'll have to eat five bags of chia seeds a day to get what your brain needs. You know, it's just not doable. And plus, you probably want to leave the bathroom at some point. Um, so that's that's that part. And I also want to share this really quickly with uh, omega-3s and omega-6s. This was a study, and this was published in the journal Nutrients. And it found that a large increase in the ratio of omega-6s in the diet compared to omega-3s directly increases our, our risk of obesity. But here's the most important part. Listen to this shit. This Another study, and... This was highlighted, and then I broke this down, and I'm, I'm getting giggy, giddy right now. Another study highlighted in Eat Smarter found that an imbalance in omega-6s to omega-3s leads to dysfunction of your hunger-related hormones and increased fat storage, even with calories being the same, even with calories being the same, people with a higher intake of omega-6s gained more weight and more body fat and had mis more dysfunction to their hunger-related hormones. All right, epicaloric controller. Omega-3s help to reduce inflammation. Omega-6s are not bad, but we need more omega-3s right now because we've become such a omega-6 dominate society. Man, it is a big topic, my friend, that you cover extraordinarily well. You have a gift. You know you're always very humble about it. But you have a gift of taking these incredibly complicated topics and making them accessible to people. Your book is fun to read, by the way. Uh, lots of fun jokes and references um, and a thread that makes it easy to follow. Where can people pick it up? Where can they engage with you more? Thank you so much, Tom. That really does mean a lot. And that was the mission behind it. Uh, so people can pick it up anywhere books are sold. Bam, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, all that good stuff. And also eatsmarterbook.com. We did a little video mini course. So there's 10 videos to highlight 10 foods that have some of the most clinical evidence on kind of helping us optimize our fat loss related hormones. So that's where people can find the book. And I appreciate you so much, Tom. People, where they're listening to this amazing podcast, one of my favorite podcasts on earth, one of the few that I listen to, you can find my show as well. It's called The Model Health Show. And we do mm -hmm. some cool stuff there too. No question. Awesome. Guys, check him out everywhere you can. I promise you will be richly rewarded. And speaking of being rewarded, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.